Man, say hi to someone before you sit down, okay? <laughs> hi. <laughs> cool. That's always my, uh, it's always my favorite thing about Rimrock is just the people. Uh, we have just incredible people here. So I just love that everyone gets the chance, if you, you can, to just engage uh, in the church and meet some people. You'll be blessed by that. I know Marsha and I are constantly blessed by you, and we're so thankful for you. So please uh, uh, get the privilege of enjoying just the people of, uh, of this place that God has called together. It's a wonderful, wonderful group. You know, we're just looking at how we engage the culture. So really, how do we leave this place and engage those people in our workplace, those people we go to school with, those people in our neighborhood? Uh, it's an interesting thing for us, I think, in this season in America where the church is not the thought leader but kind of an influencer, kind of on the edges, on the margins of society. So how do we live our lives uh, boldly for Christ? And mostly, um, so often what I see is fear. And, uh, you know, we kind of huddle up or... We're afraid to say anything, afraid to boldly proclaim that we're Christ followers or else we want to just fight the fight and, and stand up for God. And yet the driver of our lives should be Jesus Christ, not fear. And perfect love casts out fear. So as we change our perspective, our paradigm about our God and how incredible our God is, and we realize that, that our God is the great creator and he's conquered all uh, and his son has come and and died and risen and conquered everything, including death. We have no fear of death. Uh, there's really nothing to fear. And we can boldly go forth and share the truth that everybody is, is just dying for. <laughs> to know the truth about how can I get to know this almighty God? How can I get this eternal life that's more fulfilling than life on earth? Uh, there's got to be something more as I pursue all this stuff and it doesn't quite satisfy. What is it that's missing? And the beauty about uh, Christians and those who know Christ is we have the answer. And we have the privilege of being here at this season to be able to share that in this time. And so that's really um, just been on my heart for a long time is this season that we have that's limited for every one of us. How do we really engage our world? We're looking at the life of Joseph. It brings a story to the story. And as we uh, last couple of weeks, we've kind of looked at the background of Joseph's life and his father was Jacob, who ultimately was renamed Israel. And, of course, we've seen how he kind of had a really messed up family um, with, uh, you know, multiple moms and, and uh, wives and all kinds of things that happened in their background. And, uh, and, and yet God chose uh, that family to use to, to impact the world. And his brothers were so frustrated because God gave Joseph this dream which went against their culture and his father and his mothers and brothers were going to bow down to him. And his brothers were so frustrated with that that they ended up selling Joseph into slavery um, to the Ishmaelites. And, and, you know, they really were trying to thwart God's plan even though you can't thwart God's plan. And so they sent him off into slavery and, and I really, today we're going to, into slavery and today we're going to kind of pick this up in Genesis chapter 39 and, and really that God does have a grand design for you. Uh, and, and I don't know what that design is, but he does. 
and you don't know what that design is, but he does. Uh, we're, we're, we're created and designed for this relationship with him, and as we walk that out, it's amazing where he places us and what he does. So if you have your Bibles, flip open to the book of Genesis. That would be right, the first book. Um, it's easier to find in your Bible maybe than an iPad even. The first book and the f- chapter 39, and this is the story when uh, Joseph is, is sent off to, to Egypt, and he goes off into slavery. So Joseph, this verse 1, he'd been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar was an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, and he bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites, and he had them taken down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. His master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight, and he became his personal servant, and he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put him in charge of. And it came about that from that time that he made him overseer in the house, and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on the account of Joseph. And the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Father, we just come to you, and we just thank you that... um, that you are here and that you're alive and that you're with us and that you're God. And we acknowledge you as the great I am. We acknowledge you as Yahweh. And I just pray, God, right now that you would break through our lives and that you would just um, chase us and, and just overcome us with your spirit. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us by the power of your spirit, um, not by my power, um, but by your power and your might. And may you change our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen very first thing I think we need to understand as we kind of look at this is God is with you even in his silence. And we kind of looked at that a little bit last week, but here's, here's Joseph shipped off, and it just seems like God has abandoned him. He sends him off to Egypt. It's this prosperous kingdom, very wealthy, uh, fertile. They had uh, the Nile River. Um, they, you know, they really didn't have enemies, no real enemies, because they were surrounded by this desert, so they had this natural protection. They had hundreds of gods that they worshiped mostly centered around nature. They had a sun god and a moon god and a, a frog goddess, which is quite beautiful, the frog goddess. Um, you know, and we, a fish goddess and a cow goddess and a cat goddess. They had all these goddesses and gods and a god of thunder. And, and they had hundreds of gods, and they would combine like a man's body with a, a hawk's head, and they would worship it. And we would look at it and think, this is just crazy, the things they worship, until we reach into our wallet and pull out a piece of paper with a face on it that's green and say, oh, I love this, right? I pursue this. This is what I want, more money. Or we, we pursue like this body that's wearing out, right? And I love this. And you're like, it looked better with a hawk's head in it, you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. But we, we can easily look at other people's idols and kind of make fun of them. But the truth is, when we really look at our idols and the things we worship, uh, it's really quite foolish uh, from a distance and really quite foolish when we stop and think about it. So here's Joseph stuck in this land. He doesn't know anything about these people, uh, doesn't know the language, doesn't know the culture, and he's dumped here as a slave. But, and it just seems like God is silent, but you know what? It's amazing is in verse 3, his master saw the Lord was with him. And the Lord, this is Yahweh God, caused all that he did to prosper. Uh, verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on the account of Joseph. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Verse 23, when he ends up in jail, 
um, the supervisor of the jail puts everything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. So even though God is silent, it doesn't mean he's absent. So Joseph's about 17-year-old kid. He's a slave. Not a kid. He's a young man, but... And the Lord prospers him. And he's there probably, you know, maybe 10, 11 years about this time when we pick up this story in chapter 39 as he's serving Potiphar. And the Lord prospered him. The Lord was with him. And some of the most prosperous people that you'll meet or that you know really don't have any real money. They don't have any real assets. And see, for us, we kind of let the world define prosperity for us. But the Hebrew word is much deeper. And actually, one of the words for prosperity in the Hebrew language is shalom. Just think about that, peace. Think about that. It's like wholeness and blessings and, and calmness and stillness, security, well-being. That's the idea of prosperity. And it's not tied to how much money you have or how many things you have or how much stuff you have. Instead, it's tied to this incredible shalom, this, this peace that comes from God. And God's desire is that you prosper. That's his desire, that you have his peace, but it only comes from him. And he desires that you experience his grace and his blessings and his favor, and it's not tied to your circumstances. So here's Joseph. He comes in here as a slave, and he experiences prosperity. How does that work? You know, he, he's this favored son, and he's peaceful. And he's a slave, and he's peaceful. And we'll see he ends up in jail, and he's peaceful. And he's running the country, essentially, and he's peaceful. How does this just happen? You see, he doesn't know the language, he doesn't know the culture, and to really engage the culture and impact the culture, which we'll see ultimately Joseph does in an incredible way. God uses him to change this whole culture of Egypt. Um, you really wonder, how does this just happen? And that's what God did in Joseph's life. Now, Joseph wasn't a pastor and he wasn't a politician, okay? Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with politicians or pastors. Um, that would be your opinion, but... but He's not either, and yet God uses him to change everything, and he becomes Potiphar's slave. Um, you know, Potiphar really could have been the commander of chief of of the whole army of Israel. He was certainly of Egypt. He was a military leader. He was in charge of executions. He's this powerful guy, and, and yet he uh, is the one who buys Joseph, and to pursue prosperity would be a mistake because Joseph obviously failed. And yet, as you pursue God, as you surrender to God, it's amazing what God does. And it's true for us. That's what takes real courage, is to surrender God. He's the one who is the author and giver of prosperity. It's not necessarily intuitive to us. We think somehow we can pursue more stuff, and it's going to make us happy, and then we get more stuff, and somehow something's still missing. So it has to be some kind of a relationship. It has to be something physical. It has to be something with other people. It has to be something with power. It has to be something with our education. And we get this stuff, and it just doesn't quite satisfy and, and yet God's the one who provides this peace with his stuff and so the Lord prospered Joseph don't forget that okay and, and realize that the, the, the way we get prosperity is by pursuing God not by pursuing stuff I think the principle is really simple just get your eyes off yourself and it's kind of hard to swallow sometimes but that's really what we all need to hear often is get our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on God and it's amazing what Yahweh does. So just know that even though God may seem silent in your life, that he's with you and that he's moving, that he has some grand plan that we'll see how Joseph's plan plays out. And it really is, is very similar for every one of our lives. We just can't see it. 
but also know as you're walking along on this earth that you will be tempted. You will be tempted to take your eyes off of God and put your eyes on the stuff of this world and the people of this world and on yourself. And the question will be is then how will you respond? And we'll see the temptation right away that Joseph faces here after he's been here for this season. In verse 7 of chapter 39, it came about after these events, right? Joseph's raised up to be the head of the house, uh, Potiphar's house. His master's wife looked at with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. And he refused and he said to his master's wife, behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He has put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her, lie beside her, be with her. And it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household were there. And she caught him by the garment and she said, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he went outside. You see, just know you're going to be tempted. We're all tempted. And here it's with sex. And we're tempted in this world with sex. Uh, it's something certainly we have to deal with. But it may be ambition. It may be fame. <laughs> Maybe it's glory or acceptance or power or greed or a certain image. Um, maybe it's more stuff than we have that someone else has. Somehow we think our lives can be better if we can just get more stuff, get that next step ahead. You will be tempted. Um, John tells us in First John that uh, the world tempts us the same way as Christ was tempted, the same way as in the garden. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. But also he says these are not from the Father. They're from the world. Lust is kind of this, this thing where we need something to be okay and it, it's just this lie in our minds and we're, we just become convinced of it. Satan's tactics have not changed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Satan does not fell us with hatred of God but forgetfulness of God. And I think that's a subtle thing to remember. So often we think the temptations are to come at us and it's some evil, horrible thing and we're going to hate God and we're going to turn our back on God. For most of us, that's really easy to withstand. But that's not the idea of all. The idea is to plop us right here in America in prosperity and just let us forget God. Let him become irrelevant in our life. And all of a sudden we start pursuing the stuff of this world. Here's Joseph and Potiphar's wife comes and she's covetous. She wants this guy. Um, even the scripture describes him in verse 6 as he's handsome in form and appearance. She has everything she pretty much wants, but not enough. And so she came repeatedly to him. She's a very important woman. She's very persistent. Joseph has just been promoted. You know, he has all this success. He has everything to lose. And it's at this perfect time where they're all alone. He's far from home. Who's going to know? Plus, he's a slave. You're going to be tempted. How will you respond? And I know you think your situation is unique. It's not. Sorry. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about warning them about pride because they think they can kind of handle this world on their own. And then he says, there's no temptation has overtaken you, which is not common to man these temptations that we all face that we think are so unique to us and to our situation are common to all of us. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And with each temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. 
But then it's interesting. He goes on to the next verse, and so often we just kind of blow by that, and he says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And that's really the root way that we overcome these temptations, idolatry. We're worshiping all these things in our world and all this stuff and all these people and all this power and all this prestige and ourselves. And so often we put those things in the place of God and we can't understand when the temptations come why we continue to fail. But we're tempted to forget God because there's all this good stuff that God has provided. But realize that God's not the one who tempts us. James chapter 1 says, uh, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. God is always good. He's not the evil that's tempting us. And so we see this situation with Joseph, and we think, now wait a minute, what's wrong with this? I mean, this is a natural temptation. This is like a God-given desire. And here's a guy in his mid-20s, right? He's been a slave for 10 years, no girlfriend that we know of. And it's so natural, and it feels good. And this is his boss's wife. I mean, why wouldn't he just give in? What's wrong with that? But just because it's natural doesn't make it right. And you see, Potiphar trusted Joseph, and she's married to someone else. And so we come face to face with this topic of sex again and marriage. And, and sex is a gift from God. It's to be enjoyed within marriage between a man and a woman. God designed marriage. And when we, design, when we kind of violate his design, when we have sex before marriage, when we have adultery, uh, sex with someone who's not uh, our, our partner, our marriage partner, when, when, when one partner's married, when we have all these alternative lifestyles, sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, we sin against God. And so often we don't want to call it that because we've so minimized it in our society, but it's just a sin against God, and it hurts us and it hurts others. And that's really what Joseph understood years ago. In verse 9, he said, how can I do this? This is a great sin against God. It's against God. And so Joseph overcame it, and he fled in verse 12. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's just natural to sin. But Joseph looked forward to God sending his Savior, so he kept his eyes on Almighty God. And today, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit with us, and, and Christ is with us, and he, is, he can sympathize with our temptation and our weakness. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so just think about Jesus living on the earth, and he felt the full force of every temptation, and he didn't sin. And he lives within you, believers. You abide in him as you surrender to him. He won't sin through you. So just know that God is with you, even though it seems like he's silent. Know that you will be tempted, but also know what to do when we fail. And I think that's something that we so often lose sight of because there's only one who has not failed, and that's Jesus Christ. Every single one of us fail again and again. And yet I have this just incredible news. There's hope. And God has this incredible plan for you, and he wants to bless you, and he wants to use you in mighty ways. And Satan honestly wants you to believe you're never going to be used again, you're never going to quite be whole, you're never going to quite be all you could be, that somehow God is disappointed in you. That's the attack the evil one takes on us, right? You've let him down. 
there's some great sin you've committed, and so you kind of have to minimize it as not that great a sin, or you kind of have to overlook it, or you try and deny it, because we think somehow God has disappointed in us, and he can't have this incredible plan for us like he has for Joseph. And the British have a word, it's called bullocks, okay? For those of you who know, like our Western South Dakota kind of Hebrew would be called bull, okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> B.S. Okay? B.S. Uh, so you know that word. And, and, and so, you know, it's in the dictionary. The Urban Dictionary calls it a blatant lie, a fragrant untruth, and a fallacy. Uh, or the, <laughs> the excrement of cattle. Um, Wikipedia says it's a slang profanity mostly, but it means nonsense. But it, it goes on and it says, it's especially true in rebuking a response or a communication or actions viewed as deceiving, misleading, disingenuous, unfair, or false. And I tell you what, God is not disappointed in you. If you start thinking that, that is BS, okay? Because to be disappointed, God would have to be surprised, right? That's the only time we're disappointed when we expect something from someone and they do something different. If we expect the results, and we already know the results, we're not disappointed. It just happens like we kind of knew was going to happen, right? And, and what's amazing is, is God never says, oh, I didn't see that one coming, right? I sure didn't expect that. That one was off my radar. He knows. As a matter of fact, he knew you'd be right here, right now, dealing with what you're dealing with. He knew that. And what's even more amazing is Christ already died for that sin. That's how much God knew about it. He already paid for it on the cross that sin of yours that you think somehow god is holding over you that somehow is keeping you back from being all that god has for you he is not holding it over you it was paid for at the cross and so what keeps you from living free and and being used as this mighty vessel are these lies that we believe that somehow god can't forgive that somehow he can't forgive what i did back years ago he can't forgive what I did back hours ago. He can't forgive because I messed up as a parent. He can't forgive because I've messed up how I treated my parents. He can't forgive because I messed up my business. He can't forgive because I messed up my marriage. He can't forgive. You know what? Bull. Bull. King David, man after God's own heart, Stays home when he should be at war. <laughs> Sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba. Decides that I want her. Ends up having sex with her. Commits adultery because she's married to another man, Uriah. He ultimately has her husband, who's a loyal soldier, by the way, one of his mighty men, killed in battle to cover it up. That's how far he goes, and he deals with this sin. And... In Psalm 51, which is one of the most beautiful psalms expressing this picture of, of really confession and what, how God wants us to deal with sin, David writes in Psalm 51, he writes um, when, he's, when he's confronted by Nathan about his sin. And, and in verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know 
that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So he's like, day and night, this is haunting me. But he goes on and he says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. And I've done what's evil in your sight. You're justified when you speak. And you're blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. You know what he does? He confesses to God. He comes before God and says, my sin is against you, almighty God. And all of our sins are against God. That's what Joseph realized. And David had his focus on God and he, you know, he realized something about God and his graciousness. And he realized something about the fact that he needed to turn to God and ask for God to heal him. Have you confessed to God? Have you admitted it to God? You see, that's the big way Satan keeps us in bondage. We try and cover up. We try and minimize sin. We try and justify it. It wasn't really sin. You know what she did. You kind of know what they have. That's why I'm so envious of them. I wish they didn't have it and I had it. I wish she'd get fired so I could have her job. You know how I grew up? You know what happened to me when I was younger? You know what kind of family I grew up in? We have our lists, right? And we might somehow think sexual sin's the big one. It's not. It's just one. Read Romans 1. Read through the scripture. God throws all these sins together. Yeah, right in there with coveting and greed and pride. Right in there. They're all together. And somehow it's like we, we try and hide these things from God and think that somehow we're getting away with it. But all it does is it forces us to lose out on God's grace that he has for us. And so we live our lives in bondage thinking somehow we've messed up so bad we can't ever be used. It reminds me of um, a story that I, I know I've shared before, but you know, we had four daughters and 16 years of teenage girls and about 13 car wrecks through those years. And uh, yeah, insurance, it was great. Um, and you know, like for me, I was usually pretty quick to forgive the girls and Marcia wasn't quite as quick to forgive. She got a little angry, but she ultimately did. And the thing for me was always just, you know, I just wanted them to kind of, I want to make sure they're okay and just kind of admit that they had messed up. And Claire, who's our second daughter, and Claire is just easy, great kid, just easy kid. And and she got in an accident one time. She was going to soccer practice early in the morning, and she ran into the back of a guy. He was turning, and, and she ran into the back of him. And, and she would not admit that it was her fault. And I was so frustrated, because I'm like, Claire, you ran into him, you know? <laughs> Dad, Dad, it wasn't my fault. I'm like, <laughs> Claire, come on, you ran into the guy. Dad, it wasn't my fault. And I'm thinking, oh, we went I'm round and round. And finally, she explained to me her thinking. And she said, Dad, you know, even the policeman said it was just an accident. <laughs> right? It's not my fault, Dad. It was just an accident. And that would be Claire. And, and, and yet, you know, I, I think that's so often how we try and deal with God. You see, it's just an accident. It wasn't really my fault. You know the circumstances I was in, okay? You know what I was facing, God. It's not that big of a deal. Other people have done a lot worse. And we kind of bury some of these things. And, and really, our Father just wants to have us come to him and admit to him that we've sinned so he can pour his grace on us. So he can let us know that, oh, I knew that. 
Jesus died for that 2,000 years ago. Here's Joseph, he's a slave, and, and how's he supposed to get away from this? And yet he flees. And we can all make excuses for our sin, but it destroys us. So I just challenge you to, to confess to God. You know, you're not pulling anything over on him. He knows. But we're just missing out on this incredible grace. And then David goes on in the psalm when after he confesses to God, he's carried this with him, and he says, you know, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin I was conceived in my mother's womb. Basically, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. But he said, behold, God, you desire truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you'll make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. And, and he's like pouring out his heart to God. And he, and he says, I love this, this thing about purify me with hyssop. You know, and hyssop was this plant that they would use and they would cut it off and they would use it in the temple. They'd tie it to a stick, kind of like a brush. And it was first used by the Israelites during the Passover. And you can read the story in Exodus, but you know what? They took hyssop and they took the shed blood of a lamb without blemish and they covered the doorposts and the lintels with this blood. The covering was called the atonement in the Hebrew. And the Lord passed over them as this plague of death um, fell on the Egyptians and he spared his people. And we are covered, believers, by the blood of this incredible Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And he paid for our sin. And there's nothing to fear, not even death. And we can come to him and rest. And, and David goes on and he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit with me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take thy spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation and sustain me. It's not lose your salvation. It's don't restore the joy of why I'm so excited about what you've done. And that word for creating me a clean heart is, is the word that, that the Hebrews use for something out of nothing. It's the word for creation. And what's amazing about our God is we, we're sinful. That's our state. And God creates this pure heart in each one of us as believers when we trust Christ that's something out of nothing. And so when you fail, just confess to him. Admit it. Remember his atoning sacrifice. He's made you new and you can rejoice and live in that. Just know that God is with you even if it seems like he's silent. Know that you'll be tempted. Know you will fail, but there's still great hope. And as we land, I want us to catch something that I, I think is cool that most of people don't. But uh, God engages culture through you. And this is what I think is cool. In verse 13, as we continue back in Genesis chapter 39, verse 13, this is Potiphar's wife saw that Joseph had left his garments in her hand and he had fled outside. And so she called to the men of the household and she said, see, he has brought in a Hebrew slave to make sport of us. And he came to me to lie with me and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and he fled and he went outside. And so she left his garment beside her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to make sport of me. And it happened that I raised my voice and I screamed and he left his garment and he fled. 
And it, came, and it came about when his master heard the words of his wife that she had spoke, he said, this is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. And now, I just want to say one thing about that. You know, the typical consequence for that for a slave would be they would be killed. And remember, he's talking to the executioner, so he would typically kill him. So maybe his anger burned against his wife because he was used to this, but his anger burned against Joseph, right? And verse 20, Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him in jail instead of killing him, put him in the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there he was in jail, okay? And here's what I think is so cool, is how God uses circumstances for his glory. And so Joseph does everything right, correct? Okay, it looks like he does everything right. And he honors God and he ends up in jail. Isn't that cool? <laughs> See that ever happened to you? Right? Ever happened to you? Maybe not in jail, but God puts you in this place where you think you're following God, you think you're doing the right thing, and all of a sudden everything turns out horrible. And yet God engineers these circumstances that we don't like oftentimes. And so we think, why even bother pursuing him? What kind of God is this? How can God allow this? How can God be a loving God and put me in this situation? You know, Joseph should have just given in to Potiphar's wife, right? Just surrendered to Potiphar's wife, right? Wrong, wrong. You see, there's always something greater going on that's beyond our vision. And that's what's amazing to me. You see, this is a story about God. And our lives are about God. And it's about he's faithful to his promises. So Joseph does the right thing and he's persecuted and he's thrown in jail. He did what was right and his life still sucks, okay? That's how life happens sometimes. But God's end is way different than your end or my end. And it's so much greater. You see, if we're writing the story, we're saying, Joseph overcame. He fled away and ran into Potiphar and he made him the head of Egypt. Rewarded him for his faithfulness, right? Or he runs into his father who's been looking for him and he brings him home or his brothers and they forgive and he forgives them and they're here to rescue them, right? That's how we want it to go. That he gets done, he overcomes this temptation. He's at this low point after being at this high point and he overcomes this temptation and everything turns out good. But God knows that Joseph is not ready for these things. He knows that he can't handle prosperity yet. And God doesn't put him in a position to fail, but he puts him in a position to prosper and he does the same thing for you. As you keep your eyes on your father, as you just live courageously surrendering to Christ, as you admit it when you screw up, you get to experience God's forgiveness and his grace, and you'll be amazed at how God uses you for his glory in your current circumstances. Probably not ideal from your perspective, but he knows what's best. And so we're privileged to look back at the story, right? But Joseph couldn't. He's living the story, but we get to look back at it. And if you remember, Judah, one of his brothers, was responsible for selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And here Potiphar ends up buying him from the Ishmaelites. So then Potiphar's wife, he ends up in his house and Potiphar's wife propositions Joseph and he resists and he ends up in jail. And we're going to see in jail, one of the people he meets is the cupbearer, the guy who tasted the wine for Pharaoh. So he interprets a dream for the cupbearer and then a few more years he gets to meet Pharaoh and interpret Pharaoh's dream, which ultimately leads to Joseph being made kind of CEO, second in command of the nation of Egypt. And it happens during this horrible famine which devastates the region, and Joseph is able to save thousands of lives, including his brothers, including Judah. 
And guess what? Through the line of Judah ultimately comes Jesus Christ who saved you, who died for you and for Joseph and for Judah. They looked forward to the Savior. We look back to the cross. See, that's God's economy. Isn't that cool? And you know what? He's doing the same thing in every one of your lives. And we can't see it and we can't understand it. And I don't know the plans he has for you, obviously, but they're incredible. You're designed for this relationship with your creator. And through Christ, it's this personal day-by-day walk we get to experience. And we, we can know that God is with us. We don't have to fear the things of this world. We can screw up because we're going to and turn back to God and admit we messed up and he knows. We don't have to live in bondage to some past sin. That's BS. We are set free, surrendered to Christ, and just know that God has awesome plans for you. So this week as you go out, I just, I just challenge you to go out from this place and engage your culture. Begin with prayer. Just pray for those in your world. Care about them. And look for ways to just share. As you hear their story, share yours and how God has intervened in your life. Father, I thank you for each one here, and I thank you that we have the privilege of being your kids. And I thank you, God, that you have this incredible design for us that we can't get, that's beyond us. I thank you that your ways are higher than our ways that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I thank you, God, that your ways are gracious and ours are not, that somehow you're this God who just wants to pour out your grace and love on us. And God, I pray that there not be a person sitting here who doesn't experience that. Poured out grace of Almighty God. And I pray, Father, as we leave this place, we leave encouraged, that we leave amazed that you have this incredible plan for us, that you're using us mightily and that we haven't screwed it up because you paid for it on the cross with Jesus Christ. Use us mightily for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.